Amen. So Romans chapter 14, we'll just read the passage for today. Verses 13 down to verse 23. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. What founding father said, give me liberty or give me death? Seriously. Nathan Hale, I think he was, didn't he, it wasn't he the Navy guy? And he said, I've only begun to fight or something? Okay. That was John Paul Jones. I work for the Navy. I'm not, that's not going to go well for me. <laughs> Patrick Henry, right, Mike? Yep. Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or give me death. And um, we should all be thankful that our founding fathers, those patriots, um, had that conviction. They um, were willing to lay down their lives for the cause of liberty. That conviction inspired them to take on the world's superpower at the time, the British Empire, and against all odds, win independence for themselves and establish the United States of America. So thank God. But if you think about it, that commitment to individual liberty, give me liberty or give me death, as important as it was and remains today to the establishment and survival of our country, that commitment to individual liberty can be harmful in the church. And don't get me wrong. Liberty is a sacred thing. Paul wrote in Galatians 5 and verse 1, for liberty or for freedom, Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. But when individual liberty is exalted in the church as the ultimate thing, and it's exercised at all costs, it can actually destroy the church. When it comes to our individual liberty, we're, we're called to consider it as a gift from God, which it is, but that we're willing to offer up to God, offer back to God as a sacrifice for the good of his kingdom. We're called to honor God with our liberty, in, in other words. So that's really the theme of this passage, how to honor God with your liberty. And as we work our way through the passage, some of what I just said in that introduction will become more clear, I, I trust. But let's, let's uh, assume that that is the theme, how to honor God with your liberty, and let's think of the passage as some, some steps that Paul uh, instructs us in in order to do that very thing to honor God with our liberty. So the first step or the first thing that Paul says in terms of how to honor God with your liberty is don't destroy but be a blessing to your brother or sister. Don't destroy but be a blessing to your brother or sister. So back to verse 13, uh, which is very helpful because it's a good summary of everything that we saw last Sunday. I won't repeat all of last Sunday's message, but verse 13 is a really good summary. And it lays the foundation for today's passage. So Paul says, Let us therefore not pass judgment on one another any longer. That's what was going on in the church at Rome. Uh, different factions of people were passing judgment on one another, not about things that God himself passes judgment on. In other words, we're not talking moral issues, Ten Commandments issues. We're talking about indifferent matters, things that, that are not in and of themselves sinful, there's, there's room for liberty, for difference of opinion in these types of things, like what you're going to eat, what, what sorts of uh, holy days, if any, you're going to observe. But the members in the church at Rome were judging one another over these indifferent things. And the key, according to the Apostle Paul, is to look beyond the, the argument, look beyond the immediate issue. Because when it comes to judging one another, obviously your conviction you hold to for very good reasons. It's not arbitrary. You're, you're sincere. You have your opinion. And you've thought it through so much so that you're willing to judge somebody else about it. But according to Paul, the idea is to look beyond the argument, beyond the issue, and focus on your relationship with the person that you're arguing with. 
So in the second half of verse 13, he says, so therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul says the important thing is not the issue. The important thing is your brother. And when it comes to your brother, instead of you proving your point, laying out your argument, the important thing is don't scandalize your brother or your sister with this particular issue. Don't scandalize them by your um, strength of faith in terms of your liberty in that particular matter. And uh, probably the easiest and uh, simplest example, although there's so many of them that we could talk about, uh, and an example would be drinking wine. That is something that comes up in verse 21. So, It's clear in the Bible that drinking wine in and of itself is not sinful, but there are some Christians who abstain for good reasons to to them. And so what Paul is saying is, if you have the strength of faith to realize that you are at liberty to drink wine, but your brother, your sister doesn't, but by you going up to your brother and saying, cheers, bottoms up, That's scandalous to your brother or your sister. That's a stumbling block to them. Don't do that. So he goes on. Verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. My example, drinking wine is Uh, not unclean. How do I know that? Because um, Psalm 104, God gave wine to make glad the heart of man. How do I know that? Because John chapter 2, Jesus' first public miracle was turning water into wine and not Boone's Farms or Tickle Pink, but the best wine. And then Jesus himself drank wine. That's why his enemies accused him of being a wine-bibber. So drinking wine itself is not unclean uh, in and of itself. Drink, um, eating meat sacrificed to idols is not unclean. 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 8 through 10. And then Jesus, of course, taught on this whole subject, the, the general subject about what we put into our bodies In Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and following, Jesus said, Do you not see that whatever whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark adds this this comment, Thus he declared all foods clean. And then he completes the quote from Jesus, what comes out of a person, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. 
That's Mark chapter 7, verses 18 and following. And then look in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And notice with me verses 20 through 23. And you're going to notice a difference in the tone from Paul as he treats this subject in this context. So starting in verse 20 here of Colossians chapter 2, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? What kind of regulations? Once again, not the Ten Commandments, but these sorts of regulations that only deal with external issues. They only deal with things that you put into your body. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Don't drink wine. Don't drink coffee. Don't eat that kind of food or whatever. Not for health reasons, but for moral reasons, for spiritual reasons. You will be more spiritual if you do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And Paul says, these things all refer to things that all perish as they are used, even as Jesus said. They they don't enter the heart, but only the stomach, and then they're expelled. What's the source of these kinds of regulations? Not the word of God, but Paul says, according to human precepts and teachings. And isn't that true? Every single religion, it seems, every single philosophy, it seems, there's there's some sort of code that just deals with outward behavior. And it's presented as if, if you keep this code, if you look this way, you're in. You're you're part of the in club. But it's just according to to human precepts and teachings. It originates with man. And then here's what's wrong with these regulations. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom. They, they, they look religious. They look good on the outside. Hey, look at me. I don't do whatever. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. That's an st- important word. Not revealed religion from God, but self-made religion and asceticism. In other words, the the philosophy that your position with God is somehow dependent on what you put into your body. It's dependent on outward appearances. And severity to the body. But here's the bottom line of these regulations. They are of no value, zero, in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The flesh is our sinful nature. And following man-made regulations is of no value 
in stopping the, the manifestation of our sinful nature. We need the cross. We need the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to transform our hearts and to change us from the inside out. That is the only thing that is of any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, not these man-made regulations. So I say all that to reinforce Paul's point here that when it comes to these matters of judging going on in Romans chapter 14, Paul does take a side. Paul's not saying, well, you know, this side has good arguments and that side has good arguments also. Who knows which side is right? Paul lands on the side of freedom, of liberty. He says that there is nothing unclean in itself. He agrees with the person that he describes as um, the stronger brother in this particular case. But still, but still, there are very important lessons for the strong brother or the strong sister, as, as the case may be, to learn. So notice the end of verse 14. We, we've seen him say, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. Okay, there's the theological argument. The, the theology is clear. But then Paul says, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That doesn't mean that we are all a law in and of ourselves. That doesn't mean, well, we just make up the rules. And so whatever is right for me is right. Whatever is right for you is right for you. That's not what he's saying. Paul is emphasizing here the, the importance of Christian conscience. And that's going to become more uh, plain as well as we go on. When he says that it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean, he's talking about the weak brother or sister in terms of their conscience. Their conscience is not persuaded that for them to partake of this particular thing is okay. They're not persuaded. And so for them, it is unclean. But morally speaking... The issue is an indifferent matter. But notice what's at stake in verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. See how Paul has, he's changed the focus. Don't focus on the argument. Don't focus on your rights. Focus on your brother or sister. Focus on walking in love. And that will sort it out. Then he adds, second half of verse 15, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. 
Those are strong words. And the idea there is not that uh, the person with the weakest conscience gets to be the dictator in the church. But the idea is when it, when it comes to our interpersonal fellowship, what we do in our fellowship with, with one another, don't insist on your freedom, your liberty, in such a way that the weaker brother or sister will be tempted to go against their conscience and therefore be destroyed as it were. They would be destroyed in terms of going against their conscience. And then in verse 16, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. So good is not the maximum exercise of Christian liberty. Everyone else, be damned. That's not good. That's actually evil. What is good is walking in love and preferring one another. And we'll see that more. So, number one, don't destroy, but be a blessing to your brother or sister. That's the first step. The second step in terms of honoring God with your liberty, and remember, this is not the American way. This is the gospel way. But the second step is to seek first the kingdom of God rather than your individual rights. So, here I'm not saying that your individual rights as a believer, in other words, your Christian liberty, I'm not saying that's unimportant. I'm not saying that at all. I love my liberty in Christ. That is a purpose for which Christ died. So I'm not saying ignore that, uh, throw that away. I'm saying don't make that the number one issue in your Christian walk. Seek first the kingdom of God rather than your individual rights. So now notice verse 17. Uh, Paul focuses, um, he turns the focus away from the argument to the relationship. He talks about love. Now he talks about the kingdom of God in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful statement. The kingdom of God is what it's all about. The, the kingdom of God is what we are citizens of by faith, by, by virtue of King Jesus saving us, and translate, God translating us from the kingdom of darkness in the, into the kingdom of uh, God's loved son. The kingdom of God is everything to us as believers. And that kingdom is not a matter of eating and drinking. And that applies to both sides of the controversy. The kingdom of God is not uh, all about the weaker brother or sister imposing their 
matters of conscience on everybody else, making everybody else a vegetarian and a teetotaler or what have you. By the same token, the kingdom of God is not a matter of those who embrace their liberty in Christ to make sure that everyone in the church eats whatever, all kinds of things, and drinks all kinds of things. And that's not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God instead is about righteousness. It's about us having a righteous standing before God because of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The Lord, our righteousness. Jesus worked out a perfect righteousness in our behalf when he was on the earth as a man, the God-man. And he died on the cross and was raised from the dead so that the very righteousness of God would be imputed to our account, credited to our account, not because we really are righteous, but because Jesus is righteous. Amen. It's the great exchange. And then, as a result of our salvation, then God begins the lifelong process of sanctification, making us more and more like Jesus or to put it in other terms, more and more righteous. The kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness. It's also a matter of peace. The gospel message is all about us being at peace with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the way it always was. The carnal mind is enmity with God. We were, before our salvation, children of wrath, just like everybody else. God was angry with us because of our sins. But when we were saved, and this great transaction occurred, the righteousness of God given to us, our sins laid on Jesus, then God adopted us to himself. Christ reconciled us to God. Now we are at peace with God. And then we work that out in a life of peacemaking, pursuing peace with all men. And then it's all in this atmosphere of joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not that God has called us to a life of misery, with no fun, no joy, only suffering and uh, asceticism like we saw before, just denying ourselves of all pleasures. No, God has called us to a life of joy. Joy in our salvation for sure. Joy in the walk. Joy in the process of being sanctified and even joy in our trials. That's why James could say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials and temptations. Joy. And this joy is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. This joy is not the fruit of the flesh. We can't gin it up. We can't manufacture it. We can't engineer it. Because sometimes our circumstances are 
bad. There's no joy in our circumstances. Our joy comes from the Holy Spirit who helps us to see that even in our circumstances, God is causing all things to work together for our good. We don't know how, but we trust that it's true. And so that gives us joy. And then we know that beyond our trials and our experiences, there's an eternity of joy with God in in heaven. This is what the kingdom of God is all about, not what we put into our bodies and other secondary indifferent issues. The kingdom of God transcends all of those. Notice what he says in verse 18. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So, once again, thinking of the original controversy, there's division, there's arguing, there's judging going on. Uh, instead of throwing yourself into it, change your focus. Instead of thinking about the argument or the issue, instead of that, focus on serving Christ. Forget about the issue. Serve Christ. And you know what will happen? Serving Christ will bless your relationship to God and your relationship with other people. It's the key to all of our relationships. Serve Christ. Get the focus off of yourself. And then it will impact the situation. Notice verse 19. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We're called to a life of peacemaking. We're commanded to pursue peace. It's not something that you can give or take. Oh, I know some people, they, they like to be peacemakers. I don't particularly. I'm a fighter, and so I'm going to throw myself into the fray. You don't get that choice. You might be a fighter by nature. God calls you to be a peacemaker. In uh, the book of Hebrews, in chapter 12 and verse 14, it says, uh, to pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's interesting. If there's no peacemaking in your life, if there's no fruit of the Spirit, which includes peace, love, joy, peace, if that's not in you, then the writer of the book of Hebrews says, then you won't see God. You're not saved. You're not, you're not going to be saved as long as you're, you're unchanged in that sense. Instead, the thing to pursue is mutual upbuilding, uh, committing ourselves, being intentional about building up everybody in the body of Christ, not just the people that you get along with the best, not just your clique, not just everyone who crosses every T and dots every I the way that you do, not just the one who has the, the same conviction of conscience 
that you have. But everybody, the whole body of Christ, let us pursue mutual upbuilding. Seek that, Paul says. Then, step three, don't be right in the wrong way. Don't be right in the wrong way. Notice verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Now, earlier, when he talked about destroying, like in verse 15, he's clearly talking about an individual. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I believe that in verse 20, the destroying has to do with the well-being of the whole church. Because that's what he's talking about in the immediate verses. There's mutual upbuilding. There's, There's peace. It has to do with the community of believers, the fellowship of the local church. Don't destroy that. And of course, it starts with our one anothering. It starts at an individual level, but it includes the entire scope of the, of the church, the Christian community. Don't destroy the work of God. It is the church that is the work of God. Jesus said, I will build my church. And uh, Paul told the elders uh, from the church in Ephesus, he told them to look look after, to take care of the, the church which God purchased with his own blood. The church is the work of God. Don't destroy the work of God for the sake of food. And then, here's Paul's summary statement. Second half of verse 20. Everything is indeed clean. We've already seen that. Uh, I am persuaded that nothing is unclean in itself, Everything is indeed clean, he says in verse 20, but still it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. That's his summary statement. It is good, verse 21, not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So once again, uh, exercising our Christian liberty is not the ultimate thing. It's good to be willing to suspend it. It's good to be willing to do it in private for the well-being of of others, of the whole church, to not scandalize others. In other words, don't be right in the wrong way. We can be theologically right, and the, the strong brother or sister definitely has Paul, on their side, we can be theologically right, but relationally wrong. Then Paul adds this twist 
to his argument in verse 22. The faith that you have, and faith here in the context means uh, the assurance, the confidence that you are free to partake of that thing. Christ has set you free to be able to enjoy meat sacrificed to idols or wine or other things. That faith that you have keep between yourself and God. If it is a stumbling block to your brother or sister, be willing to do it in private. God has not called you to be a billboard for Christian liberty. God has called you to walk in love. And then finally, verse 23, he brings chapter 14 to a close. But whoever doubts, this is the weak brother or sister, the one who doesn't have this faith concerning uh, this indifferent matter, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the thing because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And commentator William Hendrickson is really helpful here. Whatever thought, word, action, etc. does not spring from the inner conviction that it is in harmony with a person's faith in God, or, stating it differently, whatever action is contradicted by one's Christian conscience is sin. To be sure, a person's conscience is not the final judge of his actions, whether past, present, or contemplated. That final judge is God. But this does not alter the fact that even for that individual who may not have become fully informed about the will of God as revealed in his word, it is wrong by any means of his actions to oppose the voice of his Christian conscience. Don't go against your conscience. Be persuaded or don't do it. And why are we able to do this? Why are we able to appreciate the words of Patrick Henry as Americans Give me liberty or give me death. But then when it, cur when it comes to Christian fellowship, we're, we're able to be willing to give that up. Why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. We're, we're, we're told in the passage in Philippians 2 that Andrew read earlier to, to put the interests of others ahead of our own interests like Jesus did for us. Jesus did not insist on his rights. He did not say, as it were, I'm not going to become a man and go to the earth and purchase the redemption of God's elect. I'm not going to do that. I have the right to stay in heaven and to be worshipped as God in heaven without interruption. But Jesus gave up that right and he made himself a servant and he became obedient even to the point 
of death, even death on the cross, to secure our salvation and to set an example for us that we should be willing to give up our freedom for the sake of the kingdom of God. 